Welcome back to the Truth Matters Podcast. Phil, when we were last together, we were talking about John MacArthur's book, Jesus Unleashed. So let's pick up where we left off last time. All right. Thanks, Phil. Let's move on. Chapter five of Jesus Unleashed titled Breaking the Sabbath. Uh, This is, again, uh, where Jesus is uh, healing on the Sabbath. And John says in that chapter, quote, the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees was was not that they had differing customs regarding how to observe the Sabbath. It was that they held contradictory views on the way of salvation, unquote. Uh, I love how John put that. Uh, Talk about that, because, again, I think the emphasis with regard to uh, uh, what's going on here with Jesus and and him uh, uh, in the Pharisees mind breaking the Sabbath. uh, I think this is the understanding that permeates much of the church today, that this was a matter of a difference of opinion on how to observe the Sabbath, that this was not a a matter of of salvation. This, by the way, is a theme that runs all through Scripture. It's what the book of Galatians is all about. Mm -hmm. Paul is in the book of Galatians, fighting against a heresy in the early church Mm -hmm. where people were saying, you have to do this, do this, do this, and chiefly starts with circumcision. So that that became the test issue. But it also had to do with their Sabbath observance and how they dealt with Jewish holidays and Mm -hmm. all that. The the heretics, we call them the Judaizers, because they were basically saying, you have to follow all the Old Testament ceremonial laws in order to be saved. That was the doctrine of the Pharisees. And in fact, they were so convinced that their obedience, their external obedience to the ceremonial demands of the law would gain them salvation, that they even made up rules that weren't in Scripture. For example, in the in the temple, the priest had a ceremonial hand-washing mm-hmm. before he offered sacrifices. So the Pharisees said, we need to wash our hands before we eat, right? Your mom says that too, but yep, she says true. that for health reasons. Right. They said it because they, they said this gains you favor right. with God, and if you don't go through this ceremony, it, it's a sin. You're not right. doing you're not doing enough ceremonies to to gain salvation. And so uh, they that's what Jesus was saying when he said they tie up heavy burdens and put them on other men's backs. They had the, these lists of rules, even the way they dressed symbolized it. They would bind these phylacteries on their arms, big leather straps yep. that had boxes on them with, you know, scripture references. And they made their phylacteries as broad as possible mm-hmm. so that nobody could miss seeing them, yep. you know. And um, they wore long tassels on their robes. And so everything was about how we look. It wasn't about who we are on the inside or what we believe. It was about what we do and how we look. And so they wanted people to fit these external things. And Jesus gave a whole different way of salvation. He said, you know, whoever believes in me has eternal life. It was always justification by faith and faith alone. He told that parable about the Pharisee and the publican. Publican was a tax collector and and the dregs of society. Yeah. And they both go down to the temple to pray. And the, and the Pharisee, you know, boasts about how holy he is and yeah. thanks the Lord that he's, he's such a good person. Yeah. And the publican, beats his breast, says he stands a long way off. He won't even look at heaven. And Jesus says, this guy, the guy who recognized his sin, but believed he went down to his house justified. Well, that parable condenses perfectly the doctrine of justification by Mm -hmm. faith, the whole theme of the gospel. And you can see by the contrast there, because the other guy in the parable is a Pharisee. Mm -hmm. 
he is making that purposeful contrast between the way of salvation according to the Pharisees and the true way of salvation, which is seen in the actions of this publican who simply believed and went down to his house justified. And and that, again, is a theme that goes through the—it's really the heart of the gospel, that we're saved by grace through faith. It's the work of God. It's not my works that save me. All of Scripture emphasizes this. And and why is it so important? Because we have the same situation in evangelicalism today. Yes. You have—just to single out one one group that, that sort of thrives on Pharisee-like— Sabbath restrictions, mm-hmm. the Seventh-day Adventists, yes, right. who say you have to worship on Saturday. If you don't, that's the mark of the beast, and you you have to follow all these dietary laws, and they basically tried to resurrect some of the very things that, that Scripture says don't apply to us as Christians, because they see that as the way of salvation. Mm-hmm. And um, although some of them would give lip service to justification by faith, they cannot get away from these rigid Sabbath restrictions. So it becomes a works-based religion. Yeah. And the typical evangelical today looks at that and says, we don't need to fight with these people. We 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 don't need to challenge their beliefs. Let's embrace Seventh-day Adventists as, you know, just another flavor of evangelicals. They're our brothers and sisters. And so uh, over the past five or six decades, uh, Southern, uh, the, the Seventh-day Adventists, who, who were always regarded as a cult up until about the 1950s or 1960s, have gained status as just an evangelical denomination. And people will challenge you if you refer to them as a cult or say that their, their teaching undermines the clarity of the gospel and, and has, presents a different way of salvation. And yet, Really, I don't know of anything today that more closely embodies the spirit of what Jesus was doing with the Pharisees when they contended over Sabbath laws. You know, Phil, as I listen to you, I have to harken back <clears throat> to chapter one of Jesus Unleashed and and the uh, the, the, the chapter when it is not uh, when it is not uh, when it is wrong to be nice when it's wrong to be nice because I think what you what you just unfolded at least in my mind anyway is we have a broader issue here. The more evangelicals look at Christianity or the gospel as a works-based worldview, um, the more that sort of gravitates towards a type of pluralism at best and then universalism at worst because everybody's, you know, everybody's, you know, trying. We're doing our best. So when you don't have a true understanding of what the gospel is, that this is is a message— of, of faith in Christ and, and and what Christ has done. I think, I think there's even a worse scenario there. I kind of call it the, uh, the salvation by death. You know, everybody goes to heaven just by virtue of dying. You know, yeah. the, the, the whole, the faith component has nothing to do with it. Uh, we're all in this together. You know, if you, you don't have to acknowledge, uh, uh, what I'm trying to say is you can acknowledge pieces of the gospel, uh, even in cults like the Seventh-day Adventists, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, if they get parts of the gospel right, then, yeah, they're our brothers, and we're, we're all in this together. Uh, so that's what I mean by the whole pluralism, universalism yeah. uh, dimension of this. No, you're absolutely right. And and, um, yeah, and so the, sort of the test case would be you, perhaps whether you're willing to say anything at all about what Jesus taught about hell. Right. You know? Yes. Uh, and, and in fact, 
it's it's well known that Jesus said more and and talked more about hell than anyone else in Scripture, mm-hmm. and described it in v- vivid terms. And yet today, uh, that's that's sort of become you know the 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 barometer of how nice you are. Right. If you if you talk about hell at all, then you're going to be labeled uh, as someone who... Or if you rephrase what Scripture says about hell in different terms. You don't use the yeah. word hell. You talk about hell, but you don't say it's hell. You say it's separation from God. You say it's, you know, uh, eternal damnation or something like that. You can use those words, but don't use hell, uh, because that's really mean to yeah. do that, right? Yeah, that's right. And And the question isn't, do people like this doctrine or not? That's, I think, the typical evangelical test. What yeah. should I preach on? Let me find something people are going to respond mm-hmm. to and yeah. like, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, the the real question with regard to doctrines like hell, and particularly hell, or the judgment of God, or the coming wrath, the, these things that none of us like, nobody—it would take a sick person to really love— the the doctrine of hell it's it's supposed to be an appalling concept it's supposed to be something that makes us recoil but but if that's your test of whether you're going to talk about it or not because people don't like it so right. I'm not going to talk about yeah. that then you're guilty of tickling itching ears yep. which is what Paul said is the the whole sign of you know society wide apostasy when people won't tolerate sound doctrine but but they want to have their ears tickled. And we're in the midst of, uh, uh, actually, we're we're well into a very long period of human history where that has been the evangelical style is is to uh, give people what they want, meet their felt needs, right. uh, do seeker-sensitive stuff. It's attractional. If I can, again, make people like me or enjoy the church service, then I'm better— I'm better to do that than if I taught what's true. I, I think this is why John MacArthur so frequently emphasizes the importance of expository preaching yeah. and the discipline of going through a whole book of Scripture, or going through, in his case, the entire New Testament, mm-hmm. verse by verse, because that guarantees that you are you're preaching the whole counsel of God, that you're not leaving something out on purpose yeah. just because you know it's not going to get a warm response. Uh, but your task as a as as a preacher and your task as an individual believer is to speak the whole counsel of God, teaching them all the things I've commanded you, Jesus said. Yeah, I said before on a previous episode of the Truth Matters podcast that, you know, when you talk about expository preaching, John MacArthur was my first was my introduction to expository preaching. The very right. word expository was John, John MacArthur. I was introduced to that by listening to John's sermon, Hacking Agag to Pieces. Uh, and I was just left amazed at what he did and just going through a text um, so literally, so uh, expositorily, so exegetically. I'd never heard anything like it yeah. uh, in my life. And I think because there is such a dearth of expository preaching in the church today that, again, as I said earlier, we kind of see uh, Jesus as this sort of nice guy, this nice moral teacher, this nice moral person who uh, I, I, I kind of likened him to, uh, you know, just some uh, quiet guy walking along the, the the beach as the sun is setting and he's tossing rose petals or whatever. We kind of have this vis- visage of Jesus that's like that. Uh, and that's what, but I, what I appreciate about Jesus Unleashed is two things. Number one, Jesus Unleashed shatters that visage. But then number two, it also, you see the gospel throughout. 
every chapter of that book. So it's not about uh, Jesus necessarily uh, throwing flamethrowers all the time at the Pharisees, which he did. But you hear you you see the gospel that John John yeah. preaches the gospel through this book. Yeah, in fact, I, I have this conviction, the theory that uh, you can't really be faithful to the gospel if if you systematically try to ignore these places where Jesus said and did things mm-hmm. that make us uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great point. Because he said, look, it's not the it's not the healthy people who need a physician. It's those who are sick. sick. Right. And so he's trying to convince us how sick we, how are. Sick we are. And none of us want to admit that, right? right? But but so if if you're never going to be made uncomfortable, you will never be in a position to actually believe the gospel. This is my fear about the the church as a whole these days the the current culture of mm. popular christianity and it is i think the very thing that motivated john to write this book that uh if it's true that those who are well don't need a physician and but those who are sick and meaning that you have to realize how sick you are most people filling most churches today particularly the mega churches yeah. that have done this sort of attractional Ministry, they've never heard how sick they are Mm-mm. because they're they they sit under pastors who will not talk about right. that, and therefore you have to wonder how many of these people are false converts, yeah. people who who think they believe because they have a picture of Jesus in their head with little children on his lap, and they think they love that, but they really don't have a, a biblical concept of who Jesus is. Right, thinking about Jonathan Edwards you know, magnum opus, right? Sinners in the hands of a hangry God and what the response was uh, of the people when that, when he gave that sermon. Yeah. It's unbelievable. So, all right, moving along, Phil, chapter six, hard preaching. Now we're going to park here for a second because there are a couple of uh, somewhat lengthy quotes that I want to integrate into our conversation here, but this is chapter six of Jesus Unleashed titled hard preaching. Uh, John says this in that chapter, quote, people who heard Jesus preach could not walk away indifferent. Some left angry. Some were deeply troubled by what he had to say. Many had their eyes opened and many more hardened their hearts against his message. Some became his disciples and others became his adversaries. But no one who listened to him preach for very long could possibly remain unchanged or apathetic, unquote. Now, John follows up that comment with a quote from a, a woman who I had never heard of before by the name of Dorothy Sayers. Right. And I think this was excellent from uh, from from Ms. Sayers, where she says this quote, I believe it to be a grave mistake to present Christianity as something charming and popular with no offense in it. Seeing that Christ went about the world giving the most violent offense to all kinds of people, it would seem absurd to expect that the doctrine of his person can be so presented as to offend nobody. We cannot blink at the fact that Gentile Jesus, meek and mild, was so stiff in his opinions and so inflammatory in his language that he was thrown out of church, stoned, hunted from place to place, and finally gibbeted as a firebrand and a public danger. Whatever his peace was, it was not the peace of an amiable indifference, unquote. That was Dorothy Sayers. Again, this is from the chapter Heart Preaching. Right. Dorothy Sayers is a, a gem of a writer. She is w- w- really an excellent writer. She wrote everything from um, novels, crime novels or mysteries, I mm-hmm. guess, and uh, all the way to social commentary like this. Uh, she became, if I recall correctly, she became a Christian later in life mm-hmm. as an adult. Mm-hmm. 
and so she had experienced life without Christ and then encountered Christ in a way that changed her life. And uh, it's interesting to me that she singles that out. I mean, she she lived in the earlier part of the 20th century. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she was she was just seeing the beginning of that sort of evangelical politeness that ultimately obscured the gospel mm-hmm. in a lot of churches. Uh, and she she saw its danger right off. So that's a that's a really good quote. And uh, I'm glad John put it in his book. Correct me if I'm wrong, but John has said something to the effect many times, right, that hard preaching produces soft Christians. Yeah, exactly. What does he mean by that, Phil? Well, he means that uh, if you really want to penetrate a hard heart, it takes hard preaching gotcha. to do it, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 it has to be biblical preaching because the Word of God is the sword that sharper than any mm-hmm. two-edged sword mm-hmm. that, that penetrates and discerns between the joints and marrow. Mm-hmm. So you use the Word of God and preach boldly, people refer to that as hard preaching. Mm-hmm. And that's what ultimately softens a hard heart. If mm-hmm. you want to reach somebody who's hard-hearted, you're not going to be able to do it with—you might entertain them, you might yep. win their appreciation and uh, admiration mm-hmm. and all of that with uh, with your soft preaching, but you're not going to—you're going to not be able to really penetrate their heart with gospel truth unless, again, you're willing to confront them with the idea that they are— desperately sick and mm-hmm. and their heart is deceitful mm-hmm. and uh, the only thing that can change it is the power of God's word. Couple chapters left, Phil, chapter seven of Jesus Unleashed, titled Unpardonable Sin. Now, before I read this quote from John, I want us to sort of um uh depart from um the book for a second, I would really appreciate you just speaking pastorally to this, because I think this is a a concern that many, many Christians have. But in, in chapter seven of Jesus Unleashed titled Unpardonable Sin, John says this, quote, people are often troubled by the notion that there is such a thing as unforgivable sin. Some worry about whether they might have inadvertently committed it. Some, noticing that Jesus did not elaborate a lot about the nature of the sin, try all kinds of hermeneutical gymnastics to define it as precisely as possible. Some have difficulty reconciling the notion of unpardonable sin with the doctrine of justification by faith and end up with a twisted idea of how salvation works. If it is possible to commit a blasphemy that can never be forgiven, they reason, then it must be possible for Christians to commit the sin and lose their salvation, unquote. Can you just speak pastorally to that? Yeah, because that is, of all the questions we get here, Grace, to you from listeners who who say, help me with a spiritual struggle I'm going through. The most common one is a lack of assurance or a fear, Mm -hmm. and and often it's rooted in the fear that maybe I've committed an unpardonable sin. Mm -hmm. I can't seem to get that sense of relief that God has truly forgiven me. Mm -hmm. What if I've committed the unpardonable sin? And I love this chapter in this book. Mm -hmm. It it helped me, frankly. Uh, John points out that he goes to Matthew. 12, which is where Jesus talks about the unpardonable sin. And John points out that Jesus' words about the unpardonable sin actually begin with an unqualified, broad promise of forgiveness for every kind of sin and blasphemy, Mm -hmm. except, he says, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And he uses the he uses an article that that suggests he has one particular sin in mind, and John simply says, "Look, the context makes clear what this is. This was 
in the midst of one of those conflicts with these Pharisees who were criticizing Jesus over failing to, I think, wash his hands is the, the two things. The, the Pharisees were going through a field, I think, plucking grain. They didn't wash their hands, mm-hmm. but they were doing it on the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. So that's considered, you know, gleaning on the Sabbath. That's work. They violated the Sabbath and they begin to scold Jesus. And um, he, so in response, he heals someone in one of those public healings mm-hmm. that is so obvious. And their response to that is they tell the crowd, this guy is healing people in the power of Satan. Right. Now, the the context also makes it clear that they knew better. Yep. They they had had this discussion where they said, well, what are we going to do? If if we let him go, everybody's going to believe in him. Mm-hmm. They They knew that they couldn't refute him on doctrinal grounds, and they couldn't deny him by pointing out that his miracles were fake. The miracles Jesus did were miracles you couldn't possibly fake. And so they had no answer until they decided, all right, let's just tell people he's doing this by Satan's power, so Mm -hmm. be careful, he's dangerous. Now, here are the facts. They knew better. They knew who Jesus was. They were so determined to reject him that even though they knew very well that he met every criterion for to be the promised one, the Messiah, mm-hmm. uh, he wasn't the kind of Messiah they wanted because he would come and take their place and their nation. Right. And so they rejected him with their eyes wide open and with such a finality that they they eliminated the possibility of their own repentance. I mean, they had so hardened their hearts and were so de- determined to pursue this sin that there was no chance of, of repentance. Mm-hmm. Ha- if they had repented from saying that, of course they could have been right. forgiven. Yep. Because all manner of sin and blasphemy is forgivable. And 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 you just need to com- contrast uh, Peter and Judas to see the point yes. that Judas betrayed Christ and then committed suicide, right. sealing his fate. And Jesus said it would be better for him as he'd never been born. Mm-hmm. Peter denied Christ publicly with cursing. Mm-hmm. And and to me, just looking at it, Peter's sin is every bit as dark as Judas's. Yeah. But the difference is he was genuinely repentant. Right. He he did it in the spur of the moment. It wasn't a, a deliberate sort of denial of. Yeah. It wasn't a what, do, you know what what you have to do do quickly. That that, that was right. that was that was a premeditated. Plus, I'm convinced that Peter Peter already was a believer in Christ. Yeah. He had already been united with Christ by faith. You see evidence of that, for example, when Jesus says to him, "You know, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. God revealed this to you." Mm-hmm. It's his, his great confession of faith. That's followed by the incident in the upper room where. Jesus washes his feet, and Peter says, don't just wash my feet, wash all of me. And and Jesus said, you're already clean, and you just need your feet clean. Yeah. He's saying to him, this is a lesson about sanctification. Mm-hmm. You you are already redeemed. You right. need to take care of those incidental things, you know, the the dirt you collect along the way. Keep yeah. confessing your sin and, and keep, keep acknowledging your need for God's forgiveness, but but you don't need the thorough washing every time, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, so I think he's telling Peter, look, you you, you are a redeemed person. And, uh, and then when he tells Peter, Satan desired to have you so he could sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you 
And he says, when you are converted, mm-hmm. then strengthen the brethren, meaning converted, not converted for the first time, but right. when he repents from right. this sin, which right. he did do in the end of the Gospel of John, when Jesus says, do you love me? And he says, yeah. Lord, you know I love you. Yeah. And Jesus says, you know, feed my sheep. Uh, he had said to him before he ever committed the sin, when you're converted, strengthen mm-hmm. the brethren. So he had a task to do and work to do, and his sin was forgivable, whereas Judas made his own sin right. unpardonable. Right. And those Pharisees who who rejected Christ with such hard-hearted finality, it was the hard-hearted finality of their rejection that made their sin unpardonable. Uh, and, and Scripture's really clear about that. The Lord's mercies are new every morning. Mm-hmm. He, he is, his grace is inexhaustible. So no sin is unpardonable because God runs out of mercy. Right. It's unpardonable because you've closed yourself off right. to the to the possibility of repentance. So the chapter makes all of that pretty clear, but it it all takes place Matthew 12 in the context of another yet another conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. And uh, it's one of those classic examples where you you have to look at the big picture and say it was Jesus who provoked yeah. the conflict. He's yeah. not trying to avoid yeah. conflict with yeah. the Pharisees. Yeah. He's going after right. them, which is what he did. This yeah. is what Jesus did. That's right. He he brought the fight to them. He didn't wait for the fight to come to him. All right, Phil. Last chapter, chapter eight. Whoa, chapter eight, titled "Whoa." John says this quote: "It is significant that Jesus, who was as omniscient God incarnate." was the most sensitive person ever to walk the earth. And yet in circumstances like these, he refused to tone down the message, adopt a delicate tone or handle his spiritual adversaries as fragile souls. Too much was at stake, unquote. Uh, So I want to know your thoughts on, uh, as we, as we uh, wrap up here on the truth matters podcast, what are your thoughts on the evangelical church today? As we sit here in the 21st century, losing sight of what's at stake. Well, I think the church probably began to lose sight of what is at stake long before you or I were born. Mm -hmm. And the evangelical movement became this juggernaut of a cultural movement Mm -hmm. that's driven by culture more than it's driven by biblical truth. Mm -hmm. And if we don't break out of that, I've said many times, I think the state of the evangelical church today is as bad as possibly even worse than the state of the Catholic church just prior to the Protestant Reformation. Uh, So we need another Reformation. And uh, and I don't think we're going to get it uh, because people want to talk about how I don't think it. I don't think it will come because of messages about how kindly and gentle Jesus mm-hmm. is. I mean, everybody knows right now one of the best-selling books is is Dane Ortland's book on the yes. kindness and mercy of gentle and Christ. And and there is a sense in which it's true. Of course, Jesus said, "I'm gentle and lowly," uh, but he he wasn't defining his whole character mm-hmm. when he said that. He was speaking to sinners, uh, inviting them to come for uh, for for salvation. And rest, take my yoke upon me. It's all in that same context. So this is an invitation to repentant sinners. Mm-hmm. He he didn't go out to the Pharisees and brag about how gentle and lowly he was. And I think we need a, a more full-orbed uh, view of Christ. I don't want to lose sight of his gentleness and right. meekness. That's right. important. 
but uh, but it is only half the story. And if you look at the evangelical movement today, if if we're imbalanced in one direction or the other, I, I don't I don't understand those who think, and there are people out there who think that most evangelicals have an image of Jesus as too harsh and we need to yeah. lighten up on what he's really right. like. I think the truth is the opposite, that people think of Jesus as a pal who will affirm them no mm-hmm. matter what. Mm-hmm. And uh, we know from Scripture that this is not true. So I don't understand the persistence in in wanting to uh, continually soften more and more and more people's image of Jesus. Again, I don't want to lose sight of what he meant when right. he said, I'm gentle and lowly, because he is, and that's a great comfort to to anyone who recognizes his need for mm-hmm. forgiveness. But for those who haven't recognized that yet, who just think they're okay because, hey, I'm religious, I go to church, and and there's nothing wrong with me, and yeah. whatever is wrong, of course I'm a sinner, everybody's a sinner, yeah. they'll all say nobody's that. Nobody's perfect. Yeah, nobody's perfect. Yeah. But Jesus tolerates my yeah. imperfections, and the answer to that is, no, he doesn't, mm-hmm. really. And he, he, he didn't come to... to uh, perpetuate your character flaws. Mm-hmm. He came to set you free from yeah. sin. Yeah. And for those who, who, who loved their sin or wanted to cover it up with religion, and that was the problem with the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. They didn't recognize their own sin, and they, they tried to paper over it with all their religious works. It's interesting to me that Jesus is anything but gentle and lowly mm-hmm. in his dealings with him. Why? Because in order to tear that veneer off a self-righteous, you know, holy person who mm-hmm. thinks his works are what makes him acceptable to God. If you're going to tear that veneer off, you can't do it gently. Wow. Yeah. Well, Phil, that leads us into our final thought um, for this episode of the Truth Matters podcast. The question I have for you is, if someone in our audience right now were to ask you, why should I read this book? Why should I read Jesus Unleashed? Given Even given everything that you guys have covered, uh, so far in this episode, why should I bother reading Jesus Unleashed? What would you say? Because I think it is a much needed corrective to the imbalances that you get from popular evangelicalism today. Awesome. Phil Johnson, our guest today. Phil Johnson is the executive director at Grace to You. Phil, thanks for being with us on this episode of the Truth Matters podcast. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for watching. We appreciate you joining us on the Truth Matters podcast. Join us next time for another episode.